Welcome to the Aviva podcast, and this being the second edition of a series of wellbeing specials. Today, I'm very lucky to be joined by Matthew Brown and Daniel Colflax, who have very kindly and bravely agreed to share their experiences of living with autism. Autism is a lifelong disability which affects how people communicate and interact within the world. I just want to start by saying thanks so much to Matthew and Daniel for joining me today. And Matthew, I'm just going to go straight in and and ask you to start by just talking to um, us a little bit around your experiences of of living in and working with Asperger's. For myself, I went through school not being diagnosed. Um, I was always the the weird kid um, that no one quite knew um, why they didn't interact properly. And so um, it was when I got to university where I was diagnosed, but that doesn't mean that kind of there weren't struggles growing up. So for me, my parents were quite nervous to get a diagnosis for anything. In our family, it had been quite normal for these quirks to exist. And um, my dad, my dad's called Charlie Brown. And we called it the Charlie Brown gene. (laughs) And he got the name before the character because it's like it's a family name. So it was the Charlie Brown gene that my granddad um, had these quirks. My great granddad apparently had these quirks. Um, And it turns out it's um, it's not the Charlie Brown gene. It's autism. There's a lot of stigma around kind of getting diagnosed as a kid. And my dad, I remember quite distinctly, my dad, when any conversation about it was brought up, was I'm not going to let him be thrown into the funny school, something like that, where they were so scared that I would have been put in to a special needs school which had bad reputations for a lot of misconceptions about them and funnily enough looking back it potentially would have actually been a better environment for me but essentially yeah I went through school always being the weird one the the off one I I didn't actually really get any adjustments at all until I was 16 at college where they I remember distinctly being told we can't place this as anything specific because they were looking for dyspraxia dyslexia but we can we know there's something so we're going to give you a diagnosis of needs additional support, but not actually investigating further what that was. So that was difficult. And it kind of left me very much never really understanding kind of why my brain was operating the way that it was, because I was very self-aware of it, where I could kind of see, OK, I'm 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 the other here. I'm, I'm the one that's different. Why can these kids interact and so well and so easy. And for me, it was like it was a job to actually interact with people. It was when I went to university and I had a pretty horrific experience with people that I was living with because when you go to university and suddenly um, you're thrown out of the comfort and the confines of home and people who love and support you just for who you are, because my parents, despite the lack of wanting to get a diagnosis, they were incredibly supportive. Their, op- their way of operating was always just, okay, Matt's this way, we need to work with it. And it's then suddenly being outside of that in the big world, living with people who, looking back at it, I didn't understand myself, so they had no chance. <laughs> um, and they didn't quite understand because I, I could be very blunt at times. I could be very rude. I, I could sometimes not interact in the right way. And because I didn't I didn't have any means to really explain it because other than, oh, there's just something. Funnily enough, it was when I met Daniel, who is my fiance, that I, I was introduced to kind of what Asperger's was because autism up until that point, all I'd really understood it as is the nonverbal form of it where kind of needs 24 hour care. I'd not really heard of Asperger's and it was through Daniel that kind of I really understood what it was. And um, I think this is <laughs> where um, Dan can probably 
jump in. Yeah, I mean, my, my experience with childhood was very, very different to Matthew's. So I was diagnosed at the age of 13 when I was still in school. Kind of diagnosed by accident. I had a little bit of an incident in my childhood without going into my long traumatic childhood. Um, I went for counselling and it was at that point where I was told that maybe there was something there. And I went through a diagnosis process and was diagnosed with Asperger's at the age of 13. Fair to say I'd never heard of it. My parents had never heard of it. We didn't have a clue what it meant or what the implications were of that. But when we did a little bit more research on it, suddenly a lot of things from earlier in my childhood started to make a lot more sense, especially around the social side of things. I'll always remember my parents telling me that when I was younger, I would not necessarily play with the other children. We would play trains and I'd be a train over at one side of the playground at school and my best friend would be a train at the other side of the playground. <laughs> so as much as I have friends, we didn't really play in the normal sense. Fair to say that when I was diagnosed, I didn't really get support at the time. School was a bit of a nightmare. I was a gay ginger autistic, as you can imagine. It was a pretty horrific experience at school for me. And I didn't get support until I started having panic attacks around my GCSEs. And at that point, there was one of the teachers at school who noticed that and actually took it upon herself to get me some support. It was only when I went to college and university that I started to really thrive, and especially at university when I moved out. Um, and I started running a society at university for people on the autistic spectrum to help build confidence and get them involved in their hobbies whilst they're at university. And I then spent a couple of years working at the university in sales student support as well. And it was at that point where I met Matthew. At that point, Matthew was in his first year of university and was going through a not particularly pleasant experience with uh, his living situation. I feel like here's where we should highlight that we didn't meet because of the job. Um, that just happened to, uh, because obviously I wasn't diagnosed at the time. And I don't believe in fate, but I think it's the closest thing to fate that these two Eurovision loving autistics, one diagnosed, one undiagnosed, both met each other. <laughs> I think we, we met for coffee for the first time. And I think I knew within about five minutes that Matthew was on the spectrum. Didn't, didn't take long for me to work that out, but it did take a little bit longer for you to actually get a diagnosis. And you got your diagnosis when you were 13. Matthew, you, you wasn't diagnosed. When you guys you know, come together and you met, do you feel that you kind of grew in confidence then? Because talking to you now, and we've spoken offline as well before recording this podcast today, you do come across as, as a confident person. So I kind of went through peaks and troughs. So as a child, I'd kind of, um, as much as I was this weird kid that was bullied, I, I could never quite stop my mouth running. <laughs> so I kind of, that um, that is one aspect of autism is like not necessarily being able to read social cues very well, not being able to read social situations very well. And as a kid, I was very much always the, um, the loud one regardless of if it was socially acceptable or not. So I was kind of not very aware of it, but it was as I went to adulthood and all of a sudden was in a very different environment at university. I almost became a completely different person where I... I'd lost all my confidence in terms of making friends. I'd lost all my confidence in terms of just being able to do kind of day-to-day -day activities because everything was just so thrown out of the loop. The routines that I realized that I'd had with my parents that they'd just kind of gone into and just never really questioned because it was the best thing for me. All of a sudden, I'm out of that routine. It's like, oh my God, I, I don't quite know what I'm doing here. So when I met Dan, I wouldn't say it was an instant confidence boost because it took about half a year, I think, it was to get the diagnosis maybe a little bit longer i essentially got diagnosed in between my first and my second year once i got the diagnosis um i remember i remember crying not because i was sad that i got the diagnosis but i was kind of i was relieved i was i felt very liberated by it because it was like okay i have an answer 
Now, I, I, I try to never use it as an excuse for anything, but it is an explanation. It's kind of, if there is a situation where I'm not quite getting something or it's taking me a bit longer to kind of wrap my head around something, I can just say, look, I, I do have this. I will get there. It just takes me a little bit of time. The confidence that I built through university, I kind of, as much as I, I didn't have a great relationship with my peers on, on the course that I was on, confidence in my personal life was getting a lot better. And then when I joined the world of work, it was like I went from this place where there was support pretty much from the moment that I got my diagnosis. I basically had support thrown at me from every single angle. I had a laptop. I had a. I had note takers at lectures. I went from having so much support thrown at me to suddenly being out in this world. And I, I remember a distinct breakdown that I had um, about six weeks into that job, which was basically my first full-time job, where I was talking to a customer. They were getting angry at me. I couldn't quite figure out what on earth was going on. And I just broke down crying. I managed to get to the end of the call and I just broke down crying. And I went into it. Um, my manager at the time pulled me into a meeting room and was just like, what on earth's going on? Why are you crying? And I was just like, I can't cope with this. I, 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 I'm not understanding the world pretty much. Yeah. And then obviously got this person who doesn't really know you that well, who basically especially in that environment, mostly just cared about getting you back on the phone to take the next call. That knocked my confidence for years, didn't it, Dan? Yeah. But as much as there is a lot between that moment and where I am now, thankfully, for a supportive employer, which I'm at now, um, I feel like the confidence at the minute, especially in regards to my Asperger's and being able to vocalize it, has basically grown exponentially. I feel like I'm in a really good place of it now because one of the the biggest things is that I know when to when to speak out on when I need kind of time when I need that sort of stuff. But it's definitely been a bit of a roller coaster. And this might be a difficult thing to answer. What would you say has been the the key bit of support or the period of support you've had to kind of help you with, I guess, managing with with those thoughts and you know the, the coping mechanisms you must have in place now to be able to handle those those situations more effectively than what maybe you did previously? Um, so a big changing point for me was having a manager at Aviva yeah. who, when when I first joined her team, it was kind of a, didn't necessarily understand each other very well. She had her working way, I had my working way, but kind of when I kind of made her aware of my Asperger's, she kind of asked me questions about, okay, how does it affect you? What sport do you need? And the biggest thing, and this might sound like it's a very open-ended thing but it's amazing how many people don't do this and it's she just listened yeah. when there was a whenever an issue would come up if I was getting very stressed um we in my family kind of call it I get flappy where it's kind of yeah. like don't quite know what you're doing and it would kind of be a, okay what's happened what's caused this what do you need to do and I think the biggest thing was that this manager would literally say to me I don't I'm not going to profess to understand what you're going through I don't in the slightest but what what do we need to do to get you through to the other end of it and we would work together she'd challenge me if I was trying to take a bit of a flight response which is to just remove myself from something but at the same time would actually sit and listen and I think that listening to people who experience a disability discrimination anything like that to me is always the biggest key because yeah. if you don't listen you can't learn just going back to the, the diagnosis so Dan I know you was diagnosed at 13 and with yourself Matthew it wasn't until you met Dan where you, you really got that confirmed diagnosis of Asperger's was that a long process to get the diagnosis and what was your first step to, to get there um so in terms of adult diagnosis the first step to get um to get there is to contact your GP GPs it 
very much varies kind of how much experience they have of um, long-term disabilities such as Asperger's because it is something that historically was very much done by childhood specialists. Um, it's kind of so you, you very much kind of just need to emphasize your, um, to your GP that you need a referral to be diagnosed. So for me, it's kind of, um, I went to the doctors, I just went for a um, one-off appointment and I just kind of said, look, I'm, I'm in between my years at uni, I'm struggling. I need to have a look at getting this kind of looked into to see if there is something. And um, essentially from there, the process was that the, the doctor, in my instance, she very honest with me and said, I don't really know much about Asperger's, but she did some research. Um, she gave me a call back the next day and then she referred me on to an adult diagnosis service. Now, this is luckily enough is something that there's been a real big push um, on in recent years is adult diagnosis. And they've been setting up a couple of um, diagnosis centres. So one of the first ones was actually set up in Sheffield and the they were slowly setting them up around the country. But I got referred to a specialist who specialises in adult diagnosis of autism when and it's um. With adult diagnosis, it's a lot of retrospective in terms of kind of talking about your experiences, the way that you interact with the world. There's some questions that kind of try and almost map out kind of your thought processes and stuff like that, which I'm not going to profess to necessarily understand the full in-depth of it. But it was for us, it was a really pleasant experience, actually, because Dan went with me to my diagnosis. And I remember it just being like we, we were just having a chat, really, a bit like we are now. Um, yeah. Where it's kind of just sat talking about kind of the experiences of obviously you've got someone writing it down in front of you. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was um it was daunting until I got there. And then actually it's just talking about my experiences. Now, from that, they obviously then have to kind of score stuff and do whatever they have to do in the background to decide if it's going to be an official diagnosis. But I think for me, the turnaround was it about six months, Dan? Yeah, I mean, I think to be fair, they pretty much told you there and then that they they knew, yeah. but to actually get the official report written, it, it, that took an awful lot longer. Yeah, and in terms of kind of anyone listening who may have kids who they think may have Asperger's or autism, nowadays that's picked up a lot quicker by schools. Schools are a lot more tuned into it now than they were when me and Dan were going through school. I think the biggest thing I'd say is that if you have concerns, just speak to a teacher, speak to kind of whoever is also working with your child in that in that capacity. But yeah, it's um it, it's good that there is a bit more of a push. The only thing I would say is that it is quite often missed in girls. So girls specifically don't generally display autistic traits until a little bit later, um, where it's more obvious, whereas in boys, it's very obvious straight away. Again, I'm not going to profess to understand the science of it or why, but it is something that is very underdiagnosed in girls. So yeah, it's um, the biggest thing. It's speak to your teachers because they, they can then look at making a referral for any official diagnosis that needs doing. Also, I'd just say, don't be scared to get that because just because there is a diagnosis doesn't mean that your whole world's going to change. If yeah. anything, I'd hope that, like for me, it would be that very liberating moment. I'd always encourage people that if you think that you are or if you think your child is, it doesn't hurt to ask. With, with yourself, Dan, with getting that diagnosis at 13, how did that come about? So for me, I'd had a little bit of an incident um, when I was younger, which meant that I'd gone for counselling. And the person who I was having counselling with said that they thought there was something that might be going on there beyond that. And it did 
genuinely happened by accident. At the time that I was diagnosed, it was a lot less well known. And my journey was very, very different to Matthew's. I had sessions every couple of weeks over the course of around six months to try and establish a diagnosis there rather than just having one session. So for me, it was a, it was a lot more long-winded. I always remember when I actually got the diagnosis, being sat in a room and being told, yes, you have Asperger's. And my parents asking, okay, so what happens now? And yeah. th- there wasn't an answer to that. Yeah, It was very much a case of, well, now you just go and have Asperger's some, somewhere else. There wasn't like a support yeah. plan there, on the back not, of There's being not told. a support plan. You could read, um, a letter was sent to school, but that was pretty much it. There was right. very little that actually happened from there. Do you know at all if that's different now? Oh, very much so. These days, schools are um, much more aware of it and much, much more supportive. Throughout education now, it's one of the major things that does get looked at. There's an awful lot of support there. That's not to say that it's always going to be right. Mm-hmm. Mistakes do get made. There are times when things are not always perfect, but the best thing to do is speak to schools. If you're if you're at uni, speak to your university and actually try and get things put in place and say what you need if you don't actually ask the question of can you do this you may you may be not going to get it as we get towards kind of bringing bringing this conversation to a close i just wanted to ask how do you deal with living with asperger's as a couple Dan. <laughs> <laughs> um do you know what on the most part we understand each other and we support each other that said we both do have very set ways of doing things and set ideas about how things can be done so we, we do have disagreements and we do have arguments, as do any couple. But I think a lot of it comes down to knowing that we'll never intentionally do anything to upset each other. I'm very much an organized chaos kind of person. And that's kind of what my routine, my my approach has always been. That's the way my brain processes things. Whereas Dan is kind of different to that. And it's having to try and merge those routines. Back when we first became a couple, there was a lot of moments where it would be a, hey, I have autism too. Hey, no, so do I. But I think that as, I mean, God, I've been tied to him for seven, eight years now. Um, and it kind of, <laughs> what, was that, what was that frown for? <laughs> um, but no, it's, um, I think that there's there's a lot of moments where we kind of, don't get me wrong, we, we'll still kind of have a little bit of a freak out, a little bit of a, oh, this is against what I'm used to. But we kind of have that moment where we're like, okay, are we actually mad at each other? Or are we just two autistic people? And then we can kind of have that moment where we just sit back and go, okay, we'll work through this. There's one stigma, not about autism, but kind of about couples who don't necessarily sleep in the same room. Me and Dan learned very early on, we cannot sleep in a bed together because we have vastly different routines and structures that we go into. So I have one room, Dan has another room. The rest of the house is a compromise between the two. Um, But it's kind of... um, it's just a conversation about kind of what we need and kind of recognizing that we're two autistics that um, the world says probably shouldn't go together, but actually we've made it work. I feel we're coming to um, a bit of a natural close to this, this podcast today, but before we do, is there, is there anything else that you guys wanted to share, like anything you wanted to get out there to people listening in regards to support or anything that might resonate with other people at all? I think the main thing I'd say is just if somebody tells you that they are on the spectrum just respect it particularly in a workplace setting if someone says they need support please help that that is the biggest thing that i can that i can say is you know we we're not monsters we're not anything to be scared of but we do occasionally need that little bit of extra support i think the biggest thing that i'd say especially in terms of a workplace setting um but this also applies to childhood is i've been asked in the past when i've kind of done talks or stuff like this about kind of 
I work with somebody who I think might be autistic or I think my child might be autistic or something like that. And I've been asked kind of, how should I approach this? When I was a kid, someone actually turned around to my mum and said, is Matthew autistic? And it was one of the biggest offences that could be made because obviously I wasn't diagnosed at the time. It was a very uncomfortable (laughs) conversation for my parents. But as with any disability, whether there's a diagnosis there or not, if somebody is struggling and needs an adjustment, needs a conversation about how we can move from struggling to coping or excelling, regardless if there's a diagnosis or not, you're going to need to support that. A diagnosis can come in time, but supporting that individual in the here and now can make the world of difference. So as much as, yes, um, I encourage everyone who thinks that they might or think their child might to explore a diagnosis, at the end of the day, the quirks are the quirks, whether there's a diagnosis or not. And I think as a society, if we can move towards being a bit more accommodating to people and trying to understand, okay, how can we get the best out of this person rather than needing a diagnosis in order to do that? I think that the world will be a lot happier. Help people because they're human and they need help, not just because they've got a title attached to them. Do you know what? I don't think I can add anything to that. I think you've (laughs) absolutely hit it spot on. And that's what it's all about, you know, is accepting people without judgment and, you know, looking out for each other, talking to people and, and... and that goes for so many other different things in life as well. Thank you both so much for, for joining me today. Very much appreciated. Thank you for having us. Definitely no problem. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks to everybody who's taken the time to listen to this edition of the Aviva podcast. I just want to say thanks again to Matthew and Daniel. What amazing guests they have been. If you want to learn more about autism or find out what support and information is available, then please check out the show notes for this episode on aviva.com. Thank you very much.